You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 12. That's where we'll be today. We are about in the halfway point in our series entitled The Way of Prayer. And I thought it would be good, since we're at the halfway point, to take a quick pit stop and reaffirm what it is we're trying to get done here together as a church. We're looking at, in this series, we're looking at specific accounts from the book of Acts to see how the early church prayed. More importantly, more specifically, we're looking at how the Holy Spirit inspired Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, how he inspired him to intentionally record these accounts of prayer, these stories about prayer for our benefit. What they can teach us about our habits of corporate prayer, how we can grow in prayer. Our vision for this series was to support one another by praying together on the path of discipleship to support one another by praying together on the path of discipleship. If you'll notice, the vision for the series is action-oriented. Those are two major verbs in there. Support one another by praying for each other. It's not, the purpose of the series is not to get us to learn more things about prayer. It's not to teach us things about prayer, although I hope that happens. My prayer is that we learn things we did not know or were reminded of things we had forgotten about prayer. But the vision of the series, the goal that Pastor Ben and the other elders had for it is that we would do this, not just know about it. So by all means, take all the notes you want and hash it out for hours talking about it in your gospel communities. Amen to all of that. But if you sit through this entire series on prayer, and your habits and actions and attitudes of prayer don't change one bit. You have missed something. Big. But please understand this. This sermon series on prayer is not designed as a guilt trip. You don't pray enough. No Christian prays enough. No Christian prays well enough. I don't think that I would like to meet the guy who says, oh yeah, no, totally, I pray exactly the right amount. And my prayers are, are just, they're great. In fact, if they get any better, I might be living my life a little too in accordance with God's will. So I don't want to meet that guy. I don't think that guy exists. We all have room to grow in prayer. It's much more common for us to carry guilt and shame about our prayer habits. The point of the series is not to make you feel terrible because you don't measure up to the amazing saints in the book of Acts. The point of the series is really no different from any other sermon series or season of preaching in this church. Every time a preacher stands up here on a Sunday morning with an open Bible, he wants you to taste and see the riches of grace in Jesus. He wants your faith in Jesus to be fed. He wants it to be built up. He wants your love for Jesus to grow and be stirred up. He wants your devotion to Jesus to be renewed and firmed up. He wants you to remember Jesus' great goodness and his kindness and allow it to change you. That's every sermon, doesn't matter what the subject is. And yes, your preacher wants God's word to challenge you 
to correct you, to convict you of sin, and to call you to obedience. But it is always out of love and gratitude and freedom that we obey, not guilt, not shame. As we seek to grow and change more and more into the image of Jesus, specifically in the way of prayer together, the Bible is not our source of guilt. It is our guide and help. So we've been looking to the book of Acts for help in that. We're going to keep looking at that first generation of Christians. Not, again, because they were perfect and the purest version of Christians and we just keep ruining it since then. No, but they were the only church that got their prayer stories written down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and preserved forever. So it's worthwhile for us to look at their stories. He doesn't do that on, by accident. He gave us their stories, and he's faithful to help us learn and grow and be changed by them. So, end of pit stop. Let's begin. If you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, there is one in front of you in the, in, in the pew somewhere. If at all possible, we want a Bible in front of you each week during preaching because we always want to make it clear what the authoritative source of instruction is here. And it's not me. And it's not Ben. It's not in any man's clever words or philosophies. It's bound to nothing but the Word of God. And so as a special way of showing that this morning, would you do something with me? Would you stand as we read? Um, this is a a habit and a tradition in lots of other churches. It's not currently our habit here, and that's okay. It's not extra holy for you to read it um, while standing, but I thought it would be helpful for us to focus our attention and allegiance to what God's Word has to say to us today. So read along with me. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him and put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard and came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened up for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the, at the, at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. 
Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Help us to hear it and obey it today. You can have a seat. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. So the big idea from our text this morning is this. Fervently pray that God would intervene in the life of your church. If you get nothing else from reading this story written down for you by the Holy Spirit, if you get nothing else that you carry home with you, carry this. Fervently pray that God would intervene in the life of your church. So let's get some context here for where we pick up in Acts chapter 12. This is about five years since the events that took place in last week's sermon in chapter 10. You'll remember Peter's vision with all the animals and the sheet and God telling him to go eat them. And he's like, uh, they're unclean. I don't know about that. And then everything with Cornelius and God simultaneously proving to him that it's not just these animals from Old Testament law that are not considered unclean anymore. Anyone who was previously cast off and far away from God's people, they're not unclean either. And they're your brothers. That whole scene, that was five years before this took place. Luke, who is collecting these stories and writing them down for us, he's still tracing the ministry of Peter. So even though five years pass and lots of other important things happen, Luke jumps to the next major thing that happens in Peter's ministry. And this also just so happens to be the last major thing that we hear from the life and ministry of Peter. After this point, it switches to following Paul. So five years pass between the Cornelius story and where we are now, and that is where we pick up where it says about that time. <laughs> That's the time where we're in. Read verses one through five one more time. About this time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. There are a different number of, quite a number of Herods in Scripture, um, and they're not all the same guy. This Herod that we see here is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, this is the only time that we see this Herod talked about in the Bible. His son, Agrippa II, is the other one referred to as Agrippa, if you know your book of Acts really well. Later on, Paul has to go stand trial before the king, King Herod Agrippa. Different Agrippa. <laughs> That's his son. So this is the only time that we get to see this man doing something in Scripture. And what this particular Herodian king was known for, he was famous for being a friend of the Jewish people. That's how he wanted to be known, or at least... 
he tried really, really hard to get the Jewish establishment to like him, and he liked to pacify them, mostly because he didn't want another Maccabean revolt on his hands. That was how he chose to reign in Judea on behalf of Rome. And because he was a friend of the Jewish establishment, he saw the growing Jesus movement as a threat to the public peace, just like the Jewish establishment did. So he tries to make a move to silence them. What do you do to silence a movement? You cut off its leaders. And so for the first time, a major leader in the church, one of the apostles, is killed. Herod Agrippa kills James, the brother of John, one of the three members of Jesus' inner circle. Now we can, Luke doesn't spend much time there. He just mentions it and moves on, but this is devastating news to the church in Jerusalem. To them, James was not just some celebrity Christian, some figurehead symbol that would make them sad on some kind of like personal, emotional level on their own. They knew him. He wasn't far off to them. He was an elder in their church. He loved them. He shepherded them. He was their pastor. We can't know exactly all the details of how they felt, but if any of them had this idea that since they're on God's side in this new thing that God is doing, that they're untouchable, that they're invincible in this world, if that was their idea, that got shattered the day that, John, that, that James was executed. And then right on the heels of James's death, the Romans catch Peter. Peter's the mouthpiece of the movement. He is the strongest preacher they have. He's their best evangelist. He is one of their best church planters. He is right up there with the Apostle Paul in the pillars of the church, perhaps the most prominent leader that the church has. And Herod has just given him a death sentence. I don't want to over-dramatize this, but I do think it's helpful for us for us to know what the Holy Spirit had intended in giving us this story, I think it is helpful for us to put ourselves in the shoes of this church. So put yourself there. Plant Oak Hill in Jerusalem in the first century. You're in a local church in a culture that's hostile to Christianity, but despite all this opposition, the Holy Spirit's moving. You're, you're seeing your church grow. He's at work in your people, and it's really exciting. But one day you receive word that one of your elders is captured by military police and is put to death. I won't tell you which of our elders to imagine, but do that for a moment. If one of your elders is captured and put to death by military police next week, how do you feel? Where are you? And then before you even have time to mourn over him, you get the news that your preaching pastor has been caught too. What do you do then? Where are you? How do you feel? Where? That's what this church is going through here. Can you understand maybe a little bit more about what verse 5 is talking about here when it says, earnest prayer was being made for them, made for Peter to God, by the church. Don't get too carried away in that mind picture, but that's helpful to us. 
in the text this morning, we're going to see three truths, three, three things about prayer that should drive us to fervent prayer for one another. Three things, three facts that should drive us to fervent prayer for one another. In the ESV, verse 5 here, it says, earnest prayer was made. In the NASB, it says, prayer was being made fervently. In the original Greek, there's a word picture here in that word. It literally means stretch out, extended, reaching out. The connotation there is often desperate, trying really, really hard to grab something, reached out, extended. That's the type of prayer that this church was making. And it's not happening in individual prayer closets. As helpful as that habit may be for you, that's not what they did. We get this understanding from from the book that this was a large prayer gathering. This is all of them. This is a late night prayer vigil. And given the circumstances, that's really understandable, isn't it? This is an extreme situation for this church. As a member of this church, you would want to be there, wouldn't you? Of course you would. But I want to ask you something. Pause for a moment and ask you to examine your own heart and your motivations here. Why? Why would you want to be there? You would. Why? What's driving you? What is your motivation? What is What compels you to want to be there? The context helps a lot here. So if there was no context there, and and next week, we 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 never read this today. Pastor Ben just sends you an email. Hey, we're going to have a nighttime prayer gathering starting at 11, ending who knows when. Come on over Thursday night. How many of us would come? Probably not a ton. But if this was the context, if one of our elders had been taken out, and they had another one on death row to be executed tomorrow, that might adjust our fervency. But, but, but thinking about that, what is your motivation there? What drives you there? There are lots of reasons. There are lots of things. But at, at the base of it, at the core of it, the one that's deepest in your gut is love. It's care. It's sympathy. You would go to that prayer service. You wouldn't even question anything else that's on your agenda. You would go to that prayer service, and you would pour out your guts in fervent prayer because someone you deeply care about is in mortal danger. That's why. It's a no-brainer. And it's because of this first truth about prayer that we see in this passage today. Truth number one, prayer is how we care for each other your gut reaction would be to drop to your knees and pray because prayer is how we care for one another. One of our goals in this series, one of the specific goals that our elders wanted to see happening here at our church, was that prayer would be the common first response in our fellowship. And let me tell you that verse 5 is an example of first response prayer. It's an extreme example but it's true. We we don't want first response to only happen when someone's life is at stake, but it certainly should happen then. First response prayer should be the regular common response for our church. Out of their love for Peter, their immediate response to this news was to pray together right now. 
We can, we can sometimes not think that way about prayer. That's an extreme. That's a rare prayer. That's a, that's a, a special time of prayer. I'm not arguing about that. And I'm not saying that every single time you close your eyes to prayer needs to be this intense. But we can swing that pendulum so far the other way. We can sometimes make light of prayer because it is so easy. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to open your mouth, really. It's nice for other people to hear you, but you can pray silently in your own mind, in your own heart. And because of that, it's easy to falsify. It's easy to assume and forget about. If I hear someone talking to me about a, a situation they're going through and I say, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be praying for you about that, and I don't, in fact, pray for them, and I, in fact, have no intention of praying for them, and I really just said that, I might as well have said what a lot of people in the world will, will say, comment on Facebook, sending you good vibes. Like it's a, They're about as equal in value, which is to say none. But if we, if we talk that way about prayer enough times, often enough, if that's the main way that we interact with prayer, it's no wonder that we can get a messed up idea, a messed up perspective on the subject of prayer. And it's no wonder that if that's going on, that we could be very tempted to just let it fall out of practice. Just assumed, you just close your eyes for a second and, and think some words. Our sinful flesh can twist prayer into a thousand things that it's not supposed to be. But you need to get this. The fact that prayer is free and simple and easy to do and doesn't require much of you immediately, the, the fact that that's true is half of the reason that it's the primary method that we care for one another. It's our baseline. It's our go-to. It can be our first response. It's, if you will, it's our sidearm. <laughs> it is a quick-draw weapon. It's always available to, available to us. We can always do it. You can't, you can't write letters of encouragement to people or... Or show Christ-like love and hospitality to someone if you're chained to a wall in prison. But you can still pray. You can't give gifts of money or perform acts of service or put your arm around someone and tell them that the Lord loves them greatly and share scripture with them. You can't do any of those things if you are laid out in a hospital bed, paralyzed from your eyeballs down, but you can still fervently pray it is always available to you. Even if you can't do any of the normal, visible acts of caring for your church, which you should do, if you can't do any of those, nothing can ever stop you from calling out to God in fervent prayer for the sake of someone you love. Prayer is the primary way that we care for one another because we can always do it. There's another reason, though. Pastor Ben shared this last week, this quote. He's been leading our gospel community leaders through some resources on prayer. And the author of those resources, Daniel Henderson, he, he defines prayer this way, and I thought it was so helpful I couldn't help but repeat it multiple times in this message. He says, prayer is intimacy with God 
that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. Prayer is intimacy with God that leads to fulfillment of his purposes. Yes, prayer is simple. It's, it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't, physically speaking, you don't need to do anything in particular. But prayer is intimacy with God. The one who sits on the throne of heaven is your father, and you can go to him anytime you want and carry to him everything that's burdening your heart. We so often not just make light of prayer in that way. We can belittle prayer. We can treat prayer like it is. I've often heard this said, well, I won't be able to be there. I can't give any money. I won't be able to actually do anything for you, but hey, at least I can pray. How dare we belittle prayer like that? What could be more loving to your brother or sister than to bring them with you into your times of intimacy with the king of the universe? What could be more loving to your brother than to take his sorrow, all the difficulty of things that he's going through, all of his cares, all of his burdens, and bring them with you to the only one who can do anything about it? That's, that's deeper than just holding him in your heart. That's deeper than anything else you could do for them. Do not belittle prayer in that way. Prayer is step one in loving one another. There are other things we do, and we ought to do them. But it's, it's still the primary way. It's the baseline, the first response. Sometimes after we pray, or while we're praying, we're, we're convicted of some other way that we can be the answer to that same prayer that we're praying. That's true. Sometimes we, can, we, we show encouragement, we show acts of love and service and all those things that I mentioned before, companionship, friendship, support, but under it all, undergirding all of it, we pray for the people that we care about. That's a fact. You can isolate that and it's true. We pray for the people we care about. In times of crisis, like we see in verse 5, the decision to pray kind of gets made for you. God forces you to your knees sometimes. But it's still true. We pray for people we care about. We should take a moment and ask ourselves the question, do I pray for the people that I say I love? That hurts. Do I pray for the people that I say that I love? Because we see so much, so clearly in Scripture, this is, a, this is a principle. We pray for the people we care about. Do I pray for those that I say I love? Again, it's not a guilt trip. You won't be condemned by God this morning if you're lagging behind in your prayer life. If you're in Christ, you are not guilty. You are free. Anyone who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. No condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're free, but how are you using the freedom that God has purchased for you with the blood of his son. How are you using that freedom? Do you pray for the people you say you love? If not, why not? I don't know. For you specifically, I don't, I don't know. It might be that your affections have grown cold, and you and the Holy Spirit, you need to talk to God and ask him why 
why your affections for people that, that he's placed in your life to love, why they've grown cold. Maybe that's you. But I think more likely, for most of us in the room, it's that we've just forgotten how closely connected, the, the intricate connection between loving people and praying for them. The Bible doesn't see a distinction. We pray for people that we care about. So if you're not, if you're not happy with the way you answered that question, ask for the Spirit's help in this. Ask him to show you how simple it can be, how natural it can be to start having intimate times with God in prayer and how, how natural it can be to just bring the names and the concerns of the people that you love, that you care about, into those intimate times with God. Do that and just watch how that will stir up your love for them even more. Maybe ask him, who are you trying to get me to soften my heart toward? That is all because prayer is how we care for one another. Again, there are other things, but if there's less than this, we're not caring for one another. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading out to the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and, and along the street, and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Pastor Ben has taught us a lot and well about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages of Scripture. And the book of Acts is mostly descriptive. It describes the actions that the apostles and the rest of the early church took. It tells us their true stories. All the amazing things that the Holy Spirit did during that time through those people. It is history in the form of storytelling, mainly. So when we see fervent prayer happening, and then immediately, as a result of that, an angel shows up and works a miracle, we need to know that this is not a set of step-by-step -step instructions on how to summon an angel and solve your problems. This passage does not give us a formula for getting angels to show up and fix things for us. That's not the intent. What we do see here is this next truth about fervent prayer, about prayer that should drive us to fervency in praying for one another. That second truth is this. Prayer is how God gets things done. The first thing that should drive us to prayer is that it's the way that we care for one another. It is our baseline, regular, most loved way of, of caring for one another, but also it's how God gets things done. 
This should drive us. It should motivate us to fervency in prayer for one another. Reading this dramatic setup here of all the, the chains and how many soldiers there were and how securely he was, was tightened up inside of that cell, there's no mistaking Luke's intentions here. He's a good historian, but he's also a good storyteller. He sets up this bleak picture. James has been captured and killed. Peter has been captured. He only has a few hours left to live, but earnest prayer was being made to God by the church. Even if you've never read this story or heard this story, if you've read any other stories, all good storytelling comes from biblical principles. You can see the foreshadowing here. You know this is not the last time we're going to hear about this prayer meeting. Something's going to happen there. So Peter's chained to a Roman soldier. He's, he's chained to another one on his left and one on his right. He's, if he so much as rolled over in his sleep, he would wake these men up and they would sound the alarm. He has no way of getting out on his own. Sentries guarding the door. Four squads of soldiers. All this detail about how tightly he is locked up. Funny little side note. You can kind of tell that Herod doesn't exactly understand who he's dealing with because he sends an army, essentially, a small army, to protect this one prisoner because... Most of the time, when you capture the leader of an extremist religious group, you expect them to get violent with you. You expect them to burn stuff down. So he, he, he shores up his defenses. What Herod doesn't know is that he doesn't have to worry about the violent Christian uprising. He doesn't know that when you persecute the leaders of the church of Jesus, who didn't say a word in his own defense, when you persecute their leaders, their first reaction is, to drop to their knees and pray. That's a side note. But Luke includes all of those military details to show you just how dramatically God is going to answer this prayer. If the only thing we were meant to learn from this story was the fact that, that God is powerful, that he can do anything, that there's nothing that's too hard for him, he'd go to great lengths to protect his people, if that's all that we were meant to learn from this, he wouldn't have needed to even mention that they prayed. The simple principle in front of us here is this. When the church prays, God acts. When the church prays, God hears, he listens, and he acts. We can't allow ourselves to fall into to the belief that we're the ones who are making him do things, though. It's not that God needs us to pray so that he can have the permission to get things done. But we can fall into this way of thinking about prayer and about God really easily if we're not careful. Have any of you seen the movie Elf? Um, I wouldn't say it's the most spiritually enriching thing you could watch at Christmas time, um, but it has its moments. It's pretty quotable. Um, if you'll remember the, the climax of that movie, uh, the elf, Will Ferrell, is in their sleigh with Santa, and they're trying to get off the ground because he needs to finish delivering the presents. There's also some bad guys chasing them. I don't know why. And Santa's magic jet engine is powered by Christmas cheer, and it's very low right now because not enough people are spreading Christmas cheer, and as we all know, the best way to do that is to sing Santa Claus is coming to town at the top of your lungs, and the entire park erupts into song, and enough Christmas cheer is generated, and, and the sleigh flies off, and Christmas is saved. That's the scene there. If we're not careful, we can act as if God functions like Santa's magic sleigh. 
If you, just, if you don't pray, then there's not enough prayers being generated. There's not enough fervency. God's hands are tied. Some people act like God's sitting up there on a cloud, watching little numbers on a prayer gauge, just, just hoping and anxiously waiting for the time for people to just pray hard enough and long enough so that he can do something. My friends, that is not the God of the Bible. He doesn't wait for our permission. He is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He created the universe from his breath and he holds the waters of the earth in the hollows of his hand. He's the ancient of days. He raises up and tears down empires. He's the self-sufficient, perfectly holy, all-knowing, omnipotent master of everything. He's sovereign. He doesn't need us. He didn't need us in eternity past. He doesn't need us now. Isaiah 14 says, The Lord of hosts has purposes. Who will unknow it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Answer, no one. Who is like our God? No one. That's him. That's who we pray to. And yet, when we pray to him, he pays attention to us. He listens to us. Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Ponder that for a moment. That God wants to hear from you. You who didn't exist a little while ago. <laughs> Psalm 8, 4 says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? What good is it what we have to say? What good are our, our ideas and our theories about the future? We don't know the things that are coming in the future. He not only knows the future, he wrote the future. We have no wisdom when compared to him. We can offer him nothing new to consider. We can't do anything of value without him. And yet, Scripture is clear that when the people of God pray, he listens and he acts. The sovereign king of the universe has chosen to use your prayers to accomplish his predestined purposes. Now, when I say that, we are right on the edge of one of the greatest theological paradoxes of all time, which we are not going to get into this morning. We'll save the questions about God's sovereignty and the biblical command to pray and our responsibility and how those things weigh out. We'll save that for gospel community. But the crux of it, the thing that you need to know from God's word this morning is this. The question, do our prayers change God's mind? Do our prayers change his plan? Biblical answer, no. We can offer him no new information. He's all-knowing. He's perfectly holy and righteous. His plan is best, and it will be carried out. But the other question is this. Since God planned it all out ahead of time, do our prayers have any effect? Can our prayers make a difference in this world? Because we want it to make a difference in this world. Do they make a difference? And the biblical answer to that question is a resounding yes. Yes. Prayer changes things because that sovereign God uses them. He's chosen to use them. That should drive us to fervent prayer because they're weapons in the hands of the king. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. 
or if you memorize it in the KJV, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, much, he says. Prayer changes things. It's how God gets things done. Do you see how astounding this is? God allows us not to just be spectators. We don't just get a front row seat to see him doing these things, unfolding his plan. We get to play a part in bringing it about. And we don't just get to play a part. We don't just play a small role. God has chosen and allowed us to play a crucial part in bringing about his eternal plan during our lifetime. What was Henderson's definition of prayer again? He says, prayer is intimacy with God that brings about the fulfillment of his purposes. The Christians in the Jerusalem church, while Peter's in prison, they're not superhero Christians. They were regular people. They were us. But they gathered together out of their love for their brother, out of their faith in their God. They gathered together and poured out their hearts in fervent prayer, and it availeth much, because the Bible's true. Prayer changes things. God chose to use their prayers to bring about this miraculous rescue. And it's such a simple fact that I think, I wonder if we've forgotten or ignored it. Prayer changes things. God answers prayer. His favorite way to accomplish his purposes is through the fervent and intimate prayers of his people. Here's another question for you. Do you pray like that is true? Do you pray seeking God's face, seeking closeness with him, expectant for him to accomplish his purposes? Do you begin your times of prayer with the rock-solid confidence that it will make a difference, that it will count for something. God, forgive us for all the times that we go into prayer not caring whether it makes a difference. Do we have that assurance when we start? Because it's ours in Christ. Your prayers make a difference. He will accomplish his will through them. He may not send angels and perform signs and wonders every time, that's not his most common method of answering prayer, even in the book of Acts. But if you call out to him earnestly, he will incline his ear to you. He will draw near to you, and he will act, even if you can't see it. One small way, small way to help with this, this mental battle of thinking rightly about prayer, seeing it as Scripture describes it, is to look for ruts in your prayer life. If you, if you, I hesitate to say this because repetition is not an evil thing, but if you repeat the same words more and more and more and more, the tendency can be for them to lose their meaning. And if your words feel meaningless, prayer will seem pointless. Remember, you're praying to your Father who is in heaven, who loves to hear from you, who has all power and all authority to accomplish his will in the church, and he desperately wants to use your prayer to make it happen. Prayer is how God gets things done. This final fact that should drive us to fervent prayer for one another is this. Prayer is how God builds our faith. 
Prayer is the main way that we, that we care for one another. It is the soil that care for one another grows in. It's the way that God gets things done in this world. And it's also how God builds up our faith. Let's read 12 through 19 again. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing there at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter's chains fall off. This miraculous salvation from death by an angel And then he realizes he's not dreaming. He heads for Mark's house, which seems to be the meeting place for the church at this time. And what does he find them engaged in? Fervent prayer for him. In fact, they were so set on the task of prayer that it seems that they almost missed the fact that he's even been rescued. When Rhoda runs and tells them that she heard Peter, they dismiss her. Someone even goes as far as saying, it must be Peter's angel that you're seeing, what you're hearing. It was a quick assessment of this. It was a common Jewish belief, cultural belief, that there were guardian angels for every individual person. That was a common part of Jewish traditional teaching. And since most of, if not all of, the church here were Jewish Christians, that's likely what they're referring to here. We can't know for certain everything that was meant by it, but the context lets us know that they weren't being serious. It's sarcastic. They didn't believe that there was literally an angel or a spirit that belonged to Peter who was there. They were just dismissing the idea that Peter could actually even be there. And that's interesting because I thought one of our other, uh, one of our other goals that the elders put for us is we're supposed to be engaged in engaged, expectant prayers. Expectant prayers. And here, these people who are passionately praying, who are, are somewhat our models for how we should be praying, they're our example, and it seems that they were not expecting that God was actually going to answer. Why? Why is that? Well, for one thing, we can see that they have a little bit of a different definition of praying expectantly than some of us might have. For them, it did not mean picking out a specific desired result that you want to see God do, and praying specifically and confidently that this one thing will happen. That is not their version of expectant prayer. They did not name it and claim it. That's not a scripture-recommended way of praying. And the reason that that's a bad prayer strategy is mainly because you're not God, and you don't know all the details of his plan, and he's a little bit wiser than you and might have something that you couldn't predict in store. It's a bad strategy to have that be your definition of expectant prayer. James told his people to not even presume that their own weekend plans will come to pass, let alone make demands of God's plans. And not even even Jesus prayed 
with that kind of audacity. How did Jesus pray at Gethsemane? You want to talk about fervent prayer. He says, Father God, I declare and proclaim that this cup of judgment must pass from me. Is that what he said? No. Couldn't be further from that. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Did Jesus lack the faith to believe God to do the impossible? No. He knew better than anybody what God was capable of doing. But in all of his groanings and his turmoil in the garden, in his fervent prayer, he did not even for a second doubt that God would use those prayers to fulfill his purposes. God had many purposes for Jesus' prayer in the garden, not the least of which was giving us an example of what it looks like to pray fervently, honestly, intimately with God, expressing our heart to him, and then bowing our will to his, conforming our desires to his desires. I've heard faithful men describe this uh, this way. It's like there's a boat that is tied to a dock out in the water. Prayer is like pulling on that rope. Newsflash, you are the boat, not the dock. When you fervently pull on the rope, you don't move the dock at all. But when you pull on that rope, you move closer to the safety and stability and security of the dock. Prayer pulling on that is you desperately drawing yourself into alignment with God's heart, with God's will. And when you're there, you just need to watch how his purposes are going to be fulfilled. When you bow your will to his, his will will be done in your life. The Jerusalem church was praying fervently in a way that, that Luke chose to honor by including them in the story like this. But they didn't see the result coming. And the most likely reason why is they weren't seeking after God's hand. They didn't start the prayer with the assumption of how God was going to answer. If they had been confidently expecting the specific result of God saving Peter with an angel, then they would have been on the lookout for him. No. They were, they were just a group of heavy-hearted Christians with a lot to cry out to God for. And by the looks of it, they were not anywhere near being done with crying out to him when the miracle actually arrived. So once they realized what had happened, verse 16 says they were amazed Peter had to hush them. They were making too much noise. And what did he say? He gave the testimony of how God delivered him, and he told them to tell James and the brothers. Now, this, of course, is not the same James who got beheaded earlier in the beginning of the story. And the brothers refer to the elders, the other apostles, the other leaders of the church. But what happened here? The dramatic answer to prayer amazed them. And they weren't just gawking like they had just seen a magic trick. They're not just mystified. These are believers who just discovered that their prayers were miraculously answered. They are worshiping. What do you think amazed looks like here? It's worship. They're shouting. They're praising God for his incredible kindness and his goodness and his power. And they're making a ruckus. And Peter's like, <laughs> there are still Romans out there. 
This is a major way that our gospel communities can serve each other. As we regularly meet together to pray, to follow up on what we prayed about, what we talked about last time, has there been any growth? Has there been any change? Have you seen God move in this? Has God changed your heart on this subject? Has he taught you anything? As we follow up and we pray fervently again, we consider ways that we can do more to seek God's face together, to seek intimacy at least as often, if not more often, than we seek specific answers. And when you see God move, you celebrate it. That's why we meet with the same group of people every time for gospel community. We're to celebrate what he's doing. Maybe you don't need to be told that. Maybe you know how sweet it is to hear someone whom you've been partnering with in prayer for months and months give you a report that God has answered their prayer in a far more powerful way than they ever could have anticipated. Maybe you know what that feels like. Share that fervent prayer time together so that you can share the sweetness of answered prayer together. It is both of those things that build up our faith. It's the intimacy with God. It's the drawing near to him, drawing in alignment to his will. That builds up our faith, but also it's the sharing of the faithfulness of God, the way that you see him move, the ways that you've seen him act, and it's so obviously him. That builds up our faith too. Answered prayers motivate us to grow in faith. And if we're not praying together, we're not sharing what he's doing as a result of our prayers. It was amazing to me as I studied this passage. The more and more times I read it, the more unimpressed I was with Peter's angelic rescue. Don't get me wrong. It's an amazing account of a miracle from God, obviously. But the more that I read this, the more obvious it was to me that this is not a story about divine power or angelic visitations or being freed from prison, although there's tons of biblical symbolism and truth and encouragement in that, for sure. But this is a story about prayer. This is a story of some very unremarkable Christians who loved each other and loved God and who wanted to see his purposes fulfilled and they prayed fervently that God would intervene in the life of their church. And he did. Abundantly more than they ever could have dreamed. My friends, let that be us. The same Holy Spirit that resided with them resides with us. As we go into a time of prayer here soon, we need to remember that the same Jesus who bled and died for their sin, bled and died for ours. We will meet these saints someday in glory. Jesus bought us all access into the throne room of the Father. This needs to drive us in fervency. Now, I said this before, but we don't need to pray with the fervency of Jesus in Gethsemane over everything that is facing us in life. Our fervency should match, should, should, should be equal to 
the need, should be equal to the situation that's in front of us. Because if I ask you to pray that kind of prayer every day, that's emotionally exhausting. And God would not expect that from you. But there should be fervency. It should be matching the trials that are in front of you. And I think we can all agree that we are nowhere near where we need to be. And praying fervently, seeing what God has for us and responding to him in intimacy, begging for his will to be done. We have much room to grow in that, but our motivation for growing is not guilt. It is freedom. It's our grace. Let's pray to him now. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you didn't just write a bunch of theory, a bunch of philosophy, a lot of facts and lists for us, but you have given us the stories of real people, proof that you act in human lives. Lord, that feeds our faith like nothing else could. We thank you for recording these things for us to build up our faith and feed us. Lord, teach us. Show us where we are being slothful, forgetful. And draw us, give us motivation again to draw near to you in sweet intimacy and seeking your face. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.